but anyway. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and I apologize again for not being connected here. If um, Drew and I could make a connection and we've got the secret code that's not so secret anymore. It really wasn't funny, but um, our president was talking about having the nuclear codes the other day when he was at some event, and I thought, wow. I didn't know if that was something we should be joking about publicly. But anyway, this has nothing to do with any kind of nuclear code. All right, let's see here. And then we should be able to... All right. So we got a little connection issue. I think I could fix this, though. 4501... Yes, all right. So that should bring us to Psalm 119, the Mount Everest of the Bible, as we have borrowed that particular title from a Bible scholar and a fitting title or a fitting nickname, in a sense, for this psalm, with it being the longest chapter of the Bible. And nearly every single verse has a specific reference to the Word of God. The Hebrew letter that forms the acrostic for this stanza is the Hebrew letter R-E-S-H. We might pronounce that resh. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but that is the Hebrew letter that would, in the original language, form or be the first letter of each verse of this stanza. In timing this, it's going to work out, Lord willing, for us to be able to finish the last three stanzas of Psalm 119 in the last three Sunday nights that we have in the month of December, because the 24th and the 31st we will not have the evening service due to the holidays. So the timing on that, thankful that, Lord willing, we will be able to complete an entire study through Psalm 119, and it has been a blessing. I have thoroughly enjoyed working through Psalm 119, and it's been a real privilege and a joy to my heart. But Psalm 119 in verse 153 and 54, and then we see this same theme in verse 156. We see that God considers our afflictions. Verse 153, consider mine affliction. And deliver me. Verse 154, plead my cause. Verse 156, great are thy tender mercies. Isn't it good to know that someone cares about what we are going through? Isn't it good to know that God is not indifferent to our suffering? That though he is King of kings and Lord of lords, as God the Son, He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He took on human flesh and the incarnation had all the sinless infirmities of human flesh, obviously without sin. He knows pain. He knows, even as Heavenly Father knows what it is like to have a child die and to die unjustly. In so many ways, we are extremely grateful for a God who considers our suffering. And life brings quite a bit of suffering, doesn't it? It's even this time of year, 
that we reflect often on lost loved ones, uh, those who have gone before us as we enter into the holidays, and maybe there's some uh, anniversary dates, birth dates, or just the fact that there's an empty seat at the table uh, that can be particularly poignant this time of year. It's so good to know that God sees us. He knows our needs. He knows our weaknesses. Weaknesses. He is not indifferent to our suffering. The psalmist cries out, consider mine affliction. He uses the word again, plead, there in verse 154 that we talked about last week. This prayer that comes with an urgency in the previous stanza, it was the word cry that was used three times in the first two or three verses of the stanza. And we see a similar type of invocation here by the psalmist, crying out, pleading. And in verse 156, referencing the great mercies of God. But we see several times in Scripture where God considers man, where specifically we see God seeing or stepping in or there's a specific reference to God considering or to Jesus seeing a man. We see this in Matthew 9 and verse 9 where Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and he saith unto him, follow me. God will consider man to convert him. God will consider man to heal him. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And then we know in John 9, he went on to heal that man. And of course, there was a controversy among the religious leaders, and God used that in Christ, used that in a particular way. We went through that in our study of the book of John. But God considers man to heal him. We see also in Scripture in Luke 22, in verse 61, that God considers man to convict him. So important is this, that we be in the place where God can bring conviction through his holy word. We need this conviction. We need this reproving and rebuking and exhorting with all long-suffering and doctrine. Where else are we going to get it? I know we can have our personal devotional life. We can have times in electronic digital media where we are exhorted. But there is something about the local body of believers coming together and exhorting one another, provoking one another to love and the good works, and to hearing the word of God preached. I remember listening to a, a preacher some years ago, and he was talking about preaching being not just a motivational talk, not just a little frilly, pat you on the back, and kind of help you along the way. It's more than that. Preaching may do some of that, obviously, exhorting and encouraging. And sure, there's an aspect to preaching that does that. But this preacher said that when a preacher preaches, He's really to be bringing forth an argument to bring people to a point of decision based on the realities, the truths of the Word of God. 
And as he was preaching that, I couldn't help but think back to my youth pastor in those preacher boys classes early in uh, those days of high school when we would go through those preacher boys classes. And I remember Pastor Wayne saying some of those very same things about preaching, how it is a, an argument. This is a thus saith the Lord. And that makes this a, a very solemn, sobering, humbling, and also very important and, uh, in a sense, urgent responsibility to declare the word of God. And we need the conviction of God. We need God to consider us and bring conviction. In Luke 22 and verse 61, the conviction was in Peter's heart as he had betrayed Christ. And then can you only imagine what it was like to look across that courtyard and to see Jesus make eye contact with him? You ever been in that kind of place? I remember uh, I, was a, I was a pretty good kid in high school. I never went to the principal's office one time for any bad reason in high school. I was, I was, a, I was a little bit of, I know I would get called goody-goody two-shoes or whatever, and, and that's, I'm not, not here to brag on myself or anything like that, but I, I, just didn't, I just didn't get in a lot of trouble in high school. I really tried to follow the rules and to do what was right, uh, and I wasn't perfect, of course, but I remember one time I was not ready for a test, and it was the next class period. And the previous class period was a super boring class. I did not like the teacher. I did not like the class. So what did I do? I got my other materials out and I started studying for that upcoming test or quiz or whatever it was in the wrong class period. And all of a sudden, one, one minute, I could just sense the teacher was looking at me. And I looked up because I had my eyes down and I was trying to cover up the other material. And he spoke and he asked about what was on my desk underneath the other materials, and I had to just be open and honest with him, and he told me to put it away. And it was just that awful feeling of he was looking at me, and he knew what I was doing. And here is Peter under conviction as Christ looks across the courtyard and brings that conviction. God will consider man to convict him. He will consider man to deliver him. Praise God for his deliverance. Even here, the psalmist says in verse 154, plead my cause and deliver me. It is ultimately God who we look to for deliverance. First of all, from our sin, salvation. But Exodus 3 and verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. Exodus 3 and verse 7, of course, is there at the time of Israel's slavery in Egypt. And God would deliver them out of Egypt. And he is preparing Moses for this leadership role that he would play in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, confronting Pharaoh. And we see God considering man, looking down upon him, seeing his affliction, and considering man to deliver him. And then God will consider man to advance him. Luke 1 and verse 48, he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. Now I'm using the word him or man, but this is, this is of course in Luke 1 and verse 48 referring to whom? Mary. She is humbly making reference to her state as God's handmaiden. 
She knew that she was a sinner, that she needed a savior. This is obviously contrary to Catholic teaching that basically says Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was sinless, and in all of the, the Catholic teaching. This is in Mary's exaltation of Christ who had chosen her to bear the Christ child. And she is humbly speaking and referring to God as her, she is his handmaiden. We see her humility and her response as God considers her to advance her. And the same would happen, of course, uh, with uh, men as well as uh, with Mary. But specifically in the context, the reference there is to Mary who is speaking these words by the inspiration of God. He hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. But also, God will consider man to reward him. Genesis 4, in verse number 4, the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. God considers as we put our faith in him, as we obey in faith, trusting him and obeying, we see God considering us unworthy sinners to be worthy of reward as we exercise faith in him and obey as Abel did. God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So we see God is not indifferent to our suffering. He considers man to convert him, heal him, convict him, deliver him, advance him, and to reward him. But we also see that in our suffering, we must not forget God's word. Verse 153 for I do not forget thy law. Verse 154, quicken me. There it is again. Make me alive. Give me life according to thy word. Verse 156, quicken me according to thy judgments. Again, the idea of the life-giving qualities of the word of God to, in a sense, energize us for obedience, for faithfulness for whatever it is that God has called us to or for us to endure, to be able to count it all joy, to ask him for wisdom, to uh, bring us through the trial or to deliver us out of whatever his uh, choice is in our uh, need, we are calling out like the psalmist, plead, we are pleading like the psalmist, deliver me, but with this important Caveat, that we find ourselves quickened, made alive, energized by the word of God. Not trying to just grin and bear it and endure the suffering like the world tells us to. And can I just mention, and I know that there is some good in Angel Studios and what they are producing, but their latest movie called The Shift or something along that line. Can I just say it's a Mormon perspective of the life of Job? And so when it portrays Job's suffering, he has to do good things to get rescued. There's a Mormon aspect to his deliverance from his suffering, which goes with Mormon theology that you do good works. We know that Job feared God, he eschewed evil, 
We know that Job's suffering wasn't because of some sin in his life, though we know sin is the re- that suffering is the result of sin. But that movie has a way of shifting our thinking away from the fact that Job was not saved by good works. He was saved by faith, faith alone, in Christ alone, looking ahead to the cross with his trust in the Lord God Jehovah. So just a little um, side note there is I heard about that this week and heard a good interview with the CEO for Angel Studios, but they are ultimately a Mormon-run group. I don't know exactly how that whole thing operates, but heard a little bit about it this week and just wanted to, to, to make mention of that. But our quickening in our suffering comes from the word of God. It comes from the Lord. Our quickening in our affliction comes from the Lord, not in our own tying up our bootstraps or pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not by our own strength or our own own fortitude. Think of some of the hard and difficult times in our lives. Can you imagine having to go through those without the Lord? How difficult it must be. It's no wonder the unsaved go to drugs and alcohol in all sorts of types of immorality. No wonder we're seeing the highest rates of suicide that we have ever seen, the highest number of suicides. We just hit a new high number of suicides for the year 2022, according to the latest statistics. And the highest increase has been in the older age group. I forget what it is that's the bottom. Uh, It's like 45 or 50 or 55, somewhere in there. That group the older age group is the, where the highest increase in suicides from the year, for the year 2022. 100,000 deaths from, uh, I believe it was uh, fentanyl or, or opioids in 2022. People are trying to figure out a way to cope with all of the hardships of life and the difficulties and the stresses. And life brings stress. But where do we get the stress relief, ultimately? Yes, can we do some physical exercise? Yes, can we get some rest? Yes, can we maybe take better care of our bodies with our diet and our exercise? Sure, but ultimately, as we're going through the trials and the struggles and the stresses of life, we must be quickened by the Word of God. It is ultimately the Word of God that will give us the life-sustaining And the quickening, the energy, if I can say it that way, for dealing with the suffering. Because the word of God points us to whom? God. Declares his realities, who he is. And that is ultimately where and to whom our trust must be in. As we go through the difficulties and the trials of life, the psalmist realized as he was pleading, as he was dealing with afflictions and crying out for deliverance, he knew that he must find his strength for dealing with the trials and the afflictions. He knew he had to find his strength in God and through his word. So we have been reminded before in this psalm, Verse 16, I will not forget thy word. Verse 83, yet do I not forget thy statutes. Verse 93, for with them thou hast quickened me. I will never forget thy precepts. Verse 109, yet do I not forget thy law. Verse 141, yet do, I, yet do not I forget 
thy precepts. We must go to the word of God during our trials, during our times of affliction. God is not indifferent to our suffering. We must not forget God's word. And isn't it a joy to know that God's mercies, God's tender mercies are great toward us. We know, the song, we know the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, based on Lamentations 3. But the psalmist says in verse 156, Great are thy tender mercies. Oh, what joy and rejoicing this brings to our heart. How are they great? They're great in that they endure forever. They are the works of God, who is great, who is holy, who is high and lifted up. And yet he cares about us lowly sinners, human beings, who sent his son Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, to die on the cross for our sins, who rose again, who was affected with the sinless infirmities of human flesh, who dealt with people like you and me, called the disciples, (laughs) and all of their faithlessness and all their faults and all their warts, in all of their shortcomings. And God was so gracious and so merciful to send his son to deal with sinners like you and me and to go all the way to the cross of Calvary for us and to rise again. God's tender mercies are great in that they endure forever. They are the works of God and greater than all our sins. They are tender in that they forgive unworthy sinners. God's tender mercies forgive unworthy sinners. His tender mercies come out of the heart of God who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 reminds us. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Romans 2 and verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? How about Exodus 34, 6 and 7? In the midst of all of the law-giving and everything that God was Delivering to Moses, we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, that's Yahweh, capital letters, L-O-R-D, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. We see there the mercy of God, but when man rejects God and continues in, their hate, and continues in his hatred toward God, then God is only just then to turn man over to his sin, to deliver him to his sin until he comes under the mercy of God and cries out for God's mercy. But we see that the Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. God's tender mercies are great, and they are truly 
tender. A modern hymn writer put it this way in a, a hymn. I don't know when it was published, but the title of the hymn is His Mercy is More. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam, what father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise God for his great and tender mercies toward us. And I am reminded that even on my worst day, it is still better than what I deserve. Those who love God's word, the psalmist writes, are not exempt. I'm paraphrasing, of course, from verses 155 and verses 157 and 158, that even though we may love God's word, it does not exempt us from opposition. We see in verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked. For they seek not thy statutes. Rejection of God's word will distance a person from salvation. We are reminded in the scriptures that God's arm is not so short that it cannot save. And there are sinners who are saved out of some of the worst And the harshest and the most difficult backgrounds, we know in 1 Corinthians, there's a list of some of the sins. And the the, the writer, by the inspiration of God there, Paul, says, such were some of you. How thankful we are for that mercy that we just talked about. But it's clear in verse 155 that the wicked, in rejecting God's word, distanced themselves from God's salvation. This is a reminder to us. When we come under conviction, we need to get right with God. We need to repent. When, like David, Nathan pointed at him and said, Thou art the man, David went out and he repented. When Jesus looked on Peter and considered him to convict him, Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's how we must respond when we come under conviction because rejecting God's word can callous us, can harden us. And there are some who, it's not our decision, it's God's judicial justice and his holiness who judicially will be the one who decides when a person is beyond. That's not our call to make. We're not God. But as a person continues in their rejection of Jesus Christ, their rejection of God, eventually God turns them over. Eventually they get what they deserve. They're not going to receive God's mercy and experience his grace because they have rejected God's mercy and grace. And that's ultimately what the psalmist is saying in verse 155. 
How does this distancing come? It can come through believing false doctrine, through minimizing, misinterpreting, and misapplying God's word. I, I cannot watch, I've only heard and I've only seen bits and pieces, but I cannot watch. I've heard some of the descriptions, read some of the descriptions, but I just cannot watch what Hamas has done, what Hamas did on October 7th. It just, it, 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 it bothers me too much. How does a human being get to that point? How does a human being get to the point of a Nazi how does a human being get to the point where they are a serial killer, a mass murderer? How do they get to that point? The unsaved psychologists try to figure all this stuff out. I've mentioned this FBI profiler, John Douglas. I've read a couple of his books. And he, I've mentioned already before that an entire chapter, he kind of dives into the psyche of these serial killers. And he mentions that they made personal choices they are responsible for their actions. What drove them to that point to commit such heinous deeds? First of all, if not for the grace of God, so go we. But at some point, there was the belief of wrong teaching. At some point, there was the excusing of some sinful action. At some point, there was the rationalizing of some evil. At some point, there was the belief of something wrong and something evil and then normalizing that, as I mentioned this morning. That is, that is how dangerous sin is. We don't treat it that way. We minimize sin. We misinterpret the Bible and misapply God's word and minimize scripture as to give ourselves excuses. But the psalmist reminds us, when we push God's word away, we don't put ourselves under the word of God. We don't respond in repentance and confession of sin. When we're convicted, we distance ourselves from the Lord. For the unsaved, it can go all the way to the point of a reprobate mind, as we're reminded in Romans 1, that the unrighteousness of men is held, excuse me, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. How does Ephesians 5, 6 and Colossians 3, 6 refer to us outside of Christ as children of what? Of disobedience. Disobeying the command to repent. Children of disobedience. Ephesians 4 and verses 17 and 18 gives a description as well. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. We are burdened for the lost. We must have compassion on the lost. We must desire to reach them with the gospel. And we must not give up on praying for and reaching out to the unsaved. Some, have, some of us have loved ones 
who are distant from God. Let's not give up hope. Let's continue to pray and let's continue to plead and let's continue to witness as we have opportunity in sharing the gospel and giving them the truth that they might come to the Lord. And let it be a sobering reminder that as people reject the mercy and the grace of God, as they distance themselves from God's word, they distance themselves from God's salvation that he so freely offers, that he so desires out of his kindness and his forbearance to extend his great and tender mercies to us. May we not reject them, and may we continue to pray for those who are in a state of rejection. But but persecutors and enemies will oppose those who love God's word. Don't Don't we find that everywhere we go? Some of us feel the pressure simply because we go to a Bible-believing church. Some people will have nothing to do with me because I am a preacher of the Word of God. I'm one of those weirdos. I'm one of those guys who actually gets up and publicly proclaims the Word of God. Some people, I so much as mention that I'm a pastor, and sometimes they get me mixed up, and they call me Father, And I say, I don't have one of those backwards callers. Sometimes they're really nice. Our dentist, he's been really nice. He found out I was a pastor. He said, I'm going to give you a 10% discount. I was like, yes. (laughs) No, I I wasn't bragging or anything. He just said, oh, you're a pastor? He says, I appreciate your ministry in our community. And he gave me a 10% discount. I was like, okay, great. Some people, you mention, I mentioned pastor. And it's like, you know. And for some of us, just what we believe what we hold as our principle of life, our grounding in the word of God, our doctrinal beliefs, the type of church that we attend, for some people, that's all it takes. They, they want nothing to do with us. They'll even avoid us at times that it should be just easy to, to come and join us for a meal or for a family get-together or whatever. And they'll resist that just because they... Don't want to be around one of those Jesus freaks or whatever they want to call us. We're going to, in loving God and loving his word, we're going to have some amount of opposition. As we've been reminded in John 17, I have given them thy word and the word and the, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Second Timothy three and verse 12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I, I don't know a whole lot about the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, but there was an article this week. I'm not familiar with James Carville, but he's a Democratic strategist. And he railed against Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, saying he and other Christian nationalists are a bigger threat to the country than Al-Qaeda. Okay, I don't like the term Christian nationalist. It gets abused and misused. Just the fact that you believe in the Bible, for some people, that's all it takes for them to call you a Christian nationalist. There are some who think that our whole objective is to turn the United States of America into a theocracy under the Mosaic law, like in Israel. That's not our goal. They have a complete misunderstanding. But to refer to a Christian or Christians, he and other Christian 
nationalists are a bigger threat to the country than Al-Qaeda? This Democratic strategist, James Carville, sounded the alarm on new Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, saying he and other Christian nationalists are a bigger threat to the country than Al-Qaeda, appearing as a panelist on Bill Maher, Maher, Maher's overtime segment, Carville was asked about Johnson, who was from his home state of Louisiana. Mike Johnson, in what he believes, is one of the greatest threats we have today to the United States. I promise you, I know these people, Carville says. You are, you're talking about Christian nationalists, Maher said. Absolutely, this is a bigger threat than Al-Qaeda. And let me tell you something, the Speaker of the House... They got probably at least two Supreme Court justices, maybe more. Don't kid yourself, he continued. People in the press have no idea who this guy is. This is a fundamental threat to the United States. It is a fundamental thing. They don't believe in the Constitution. They'll tell you that. Mike Johnson himself says what is democracy, but two wolves and a lamb having lunch. That's really what they believe. And to say, oh, come on, man, it's just... This They believe that, and they're coming, and they've been doing it forever. They're funded. They're funded. They're relentless, and you know they probably won't win for a while, but they might, and if they do, the whole country blows a gasket. House Speaker Mike Johnson has repeatedly been attacked by the left over his religious beliefs. Maher has been outspoken in his animosity, calling what Mike Johnson believes religious fanaticism in accusing him of rooting for the end of the world so we can get on with the rapture. Mike thinks God personally chooses, raises up our leaders, which is a very dangerous thought, because when you lose an election, you think it's just another one of God's tricks to test your faith, Maher told his audience. Mike says we began as a Christian nation. We didn't. I have to laugh because of his ignorance. Did you miss that day in homeschool, Mike? Maher says in sarcasm, if you don't know that the pilgrims came here to get away from the Church of England. <laughs> Do we not know who the pilgrims are? They were separatist Puritans. They were Bible-believing Christians who sat on the Mayflower and formed a Mayflower compact based on the word of God. So when they landed, they would be able to get along and live according to the principles of God's word. Unbelievable. If you don't know that, the pilgrims came here to get away from the Church of England, and you don't know literally the first thing about our country. Maher continued, Mike says, being a Christian nation is our tradition. It's who we are as a people. It's not. We're the people who have a First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What's the other part of the First Amendment? Nor denying the free exercise thereof. Right? He doesn't mention that part of it. And we have an Article 6 which says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office. So I take these people at their word when they say that they think we should be Christian nationalists. Bill Maher goes on to compare Speaker Mike Johnson to Osama bin Laden and the mass shooter in the state of Maine who murdered 18 people. Maher echoed Carville's sentiment and claimed Johnson exactly sounds like bin Laden. Quoting the speaker at a prayer group when he said, Depraved America deserves God's wrath. In October, he compared Johnson to the main 
mass shooter responsible for murdering 18 people and injuring 13 others. When you're this much of a religious fanatic, there is no room for real democracy. That's not what you believe in. He said it today. Look in the Bible. That's my worldview. And I was reading about this horrible shooting in Maine, and you know, we don't know much about the guy yet, but apparently he heard voices. And I guess that's about the same as Mike Johnson. Is he any different than Mike Johnson? I mean, in degree, yes, but it's thinner than you think. Saying that a mass shooter who killed 18 people in the state of Maine who heard voices in his head is the same as us as Christians who believe in the word of God. There's opposition, isn't there? Right here in America, opposition to those who love God's word. We close tonight with a third point, and we'll finish up with these last couple of verses here. Verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. A third time now he's used that word quicken. Verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Just a few final points here. We must, again, love the word of God. Truly love the word of God. That it be more precious to us, greater, more than honey in the honeycomb, sweeter to our taste than honey from the honeycomb. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. We must love the word of God. He reminds us again of God's loving kindness, his mercy, his loyal love that brings eternal life. And then he concludes this stanza with that statement about the word of God being true from the beginning. That means from the beginning to the end, from the top to the bottom, in every way and in every part. It's simply a phrase a colloquialism, if we can say it that, in the vernacular, that says every part in every way, in its origin, it is holy, and it is true in its origin, and it is true from beginning to end, in every part. And as the different critical rationalist attacks upon the Bible in the 19th century began. They began to say things like the Bible is true in matters of spirituality. But Genesis 1, it's not really six literal 24-hour days. There's eons of time in there, billions of years. God used evolution. They began to say things like the Bible might be true in matters of spirituality, but not in science, not in history. We then have the right to allegorize and to interpret and to decide. And now you can go to Payless and you can go through the checkout line and you can buy a magazine with the title on the front, The Unknown Jesus. Every Easter and every Christmas, they sell magazines like that. Right here is what we need to know Jesus. Very clear right here. We don't need to buy some magazine that comes out every six months to try to figure out who the real Jesus is. The real Jesus is declared in God's holy word right here. And he lives within our heart. The word of God is true in every way, in every part, from beginning to end, from top to the bottom. And it reminds us of Revelation 1.8. 
and 111, 21.6, and 22.13. Christ, who is the living word, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And all God's people say, Amen to that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. What an encouragement this stanza is to us in days of difficulty and days of opposition. May we, Lord, continue to stand firm upon the word of God. Lay hold of your truth. Be firmly committed. Biblically convicted. And Lord, may we walk in your truth and declare your truth and share your truth with others and We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths that help us so desperately, Lord, we need your help in these days. And Lord, we thank you for this psalm, and Lord, help us to go out from here and to live your truth this week, wherever you have placed us, for your honor and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.